Hello and welcome back to the Bet on Yourself and Double Down podcast. I'm your host, James Puckett. Today we're going to do a little switcheroo. We're going to bring back Ryan McKelly to actually interview and talk to me about some of my experiences. One of the things I strongly believe in is modeling uh, vulnerability and honesty. Um, I ask my guests challenging and difficult questions, and <clears throat> I believe it's only fair that I get put in your seat for one. So, Ryan, welcome back. How are you? Oh, it's a pleasure to be back. It's a double honor to get to do this for you, uh, you know, because of what you're doing with other folks. So I'm, I'm thrilled to be back and yeah. getting to talk with you because there's going to be some things I don't know about you that I'm really excited to learn about. So, yeah, I mean, however you want to, you know, proceed. Um, okay. I'm all yours. <laughs> all right. Well, then then let me just let the audience know something that before we got on this uh, on the call, I asked you if I could do a, a biographical statement like you do for your guests and you said no. So that should tell you about James and, and humility. So I decided instead of doing that formal one, I just want to say two things about you, having gotten to know you, you know, 15 years ago. You know, one is, uh, you know, James is a mensch. So that, that's, if you don't know, it's a Yiddish word that they use in the Jewish community. Um, I think it's such a perfect word. It is a person of deep honor and integrity. And so I, I would put that on your bio statements. I know you can't say it about yourself, but, but others can do so. So James, you're a mensch. Uh, and then I was also trying to think a way I could, you know, kind of pay you the highest compliment and uh, you would be somebody I would name in my will uh, to leave uh, our children if, if we ever disappeared. Now, this is not an ask right now. So I'm telling you that we got other people. Wow. Uh, but, I, but you're the type of person I would be com completely confident and comfortable in trusting my own children. With. And so I, I think that's an important uh, thing to share with you. That's uh that's um i i've never yeah i guess i have never thought of myself in that light nor did um, i think anybody would trust me enough <laughs> kids with me but yeah i i'm not going to manufacture something to say um I, I think it's i'm speechless i'm i'm you know i'm a little uh off balance by that type of praise and compliment, but I, I appreciate you sharing that. It's always good to hear that, um, you know, that you, you carry the traits and the characteristics worthy enough to care for another person's kids. So uh, thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. And certainly didn't mean to put you on the spot, but I'm, I'm pretty confident that, you know, through our conversation discussion today, people will understand uh, where that's coming from. So you, you don't even have to have a fair statement. Um, so, you know, one of the goals of your show is to really kind of dig deep uh, with your guests to kind of figure out you know, their life paths and how they ended up doing the work that they're doing in law enforcement or mental health or advertising or journalism, kind of all, all the goals of the, the bet on yourself and double down. Uh, so I, I, I wanted to kind of open up with a, a pretty a general question. Uh, tell us what you're comfortable telling us about your path, because right now you're a licensed professional counselor. You've got some specialties uh, in trauma and substance use uh, and abuse. You're an instructor at the University of Wisconsin-La Crosse, teaching courses in mental health uh, and psychology. So how did you get here? Tell us as much as you, you want along that path. And I may jump in at times, too, to, to ask some follow-up questions. Yeah, so, um, you know, one of the things that... I think it's taken me a long time to believe and accept this idea that life isn't linear. 
I think one of the reasons it's been hard to, to accept is because I think part of my upbringing, one of the things that was constantly kind of drilled into me is that there's this right way, a wrong way of doing things. So if you weren't doing this, it meant that things aren't going to work out or you had to do this to have worthiness in your life. Um, yeah, I, I guess so. I was born in 1980, uh, Fort Knox, Kentucky. Um, my parents met in the military. My childhood was, you know, it was, it's, it's interesting because I'm a person that can remember really, really fun moments. Like, you know, there, there, there aren't many, there, there aren't any relationships that I can honestly say that have been, um, while they've been unhealthy, I can still point to moments where they were okay. So, mm -hmm. you know, I'll, I'll start with my parents and of, of course it's, <clears throat> you know, what I'm sharing is how I remember it, how I experienced it based on obviously the, the, the different levels of complexity with each of us as human beings, we're going to perceive and um, interpret things, you know, as we do. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, the first four years of my life, I don't remember there being much friction or conflict. I remember, um, you know, my dad and my mom, they seem to be, you know, joint parents. Um, now, when I was six weeks old, I had congestive heart failure, which I think was a you know, I know for my mom was just a, a kind of a tone setter as a parent. Mm -hmm. um, I really don't understand. I, it's conflicting stories how I ended up having heart failure. Um, I was told for a long time it was rheumatic fever. I was told that it was just a fever. Like I, none of it adds up. So there are some spaces in my life where I've never just gotten answers to. So, so there, was, there, there was confusion even in the story between your parents yeah, like, um, I, I've never gotten clarity of how my heart stopped. All okay. I know is I ended up going to the Children's Hospital in Louisville, because um, we were living at Fort Knox at the time. So my sister was born in um, four years later, or four years older than my sister. I remember early on with her, things being really good. It felt like the family was a family unit. We ended up moving to Germany for a few years, um, and that is the first time I can kind of remember conflict with my family. Um, I do remember getting a, you know, for anybody that was born in the 80s and got a lightsaber for a president at any time, <laughs> things were extremely heavy and not safe. So you had the base of it, the, the handle that had like, carried like six to eight B batteries. Like right, it was right. a children's toy, but it was a 15 pound dumbbell. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It was just like not safe. But, um, I remember, um, my parents getting into a fight on Christmas and I remember it was the first time I intervened and that lightsaber was used as a weapon on me. And I remember getting thrown oh. into a closet. Um, wow. Time in Germany, there's only a few things I really remember about my time in Germany. There was a, another time where we went to, um, every Christmas we'd go to this little German village to 
do like Christmas shopping for our parents. And it was like in this little, um, really, uh, it, it just, it, it, it wasn't the military base. Like you were experiencing Germany. Mm-hmm. I remember my dad chaperoned the trip for one of them. And I, I can recall, and I still have, I have a picture of this to this day of how my dad would interact with my classmates, but wouldn't really talk to me. Hmm. Um, I can see that picture, you know, in my head, and I still remember that feeling. We ended up what? Up what did you make of that, though, at the time? I don't. It's hard to say. I, I think with my dad, I've never, I've never felt good enough for whatever reason. Um, so I mean, that creeps in, and. Mm-hmm. You know, you wonder, you know, in that picture, I was five or six years old and, you know, my son now is going to be five next month. And I, I just, I can't like <clears throat> imagine putting him in a position to make him question kind of his worth. Um, and that, that, that that's going to be an ongoing theme in my life and even still today to a degree. But we ended up rotating back to the, the United States Um First duty station was Fort Campbell, Kentucky, and that's where, um, you know, the wheels really fell off. Where, I mean, I, I can still remember one Easter. Um, I don't know what happened for sure, but I suspect certain things. He and my mom got into a fight Easter morning. They had a, a, a bathroom in their bedroom, and I remember sitting on their bed. Because as a kid, I would, I would kind of gravitate towards their fights to predict what would go on. Mm. That actually became a, in a weird way, a pastime of mine because it allowed me to kind of predict how the night and the day would be, essentially, based mm. on that fight. Well, this particular fight, I remember sitting on their bed and hearing my mom say, no, 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 like multiple times. And I don't know what happened in that bathroom. It makes me, you know, wonder. There is increasing amount of hostility, I remember, after we got back from Germany. I remember one night in particular, my dad had this big glass mug and it was full of coins. And I remember, and, and this, this one kind of hits because my son now will say these words to me. Um, but I remember trying to pick it up to show my dad how strong I was because... My dad was a very physical man. Um, you know, I, I have pictures of him when I was young, and, and he's like a very imposing figure. And I remember trying to pick this mug up to show him how strong I was, and needless to say, I wasn't strong enough, and the mug broke. And I just remember him going off. Um, and the, now my son today will say, Hey, Dad, look at my muscles. Look how strong I am. You know, and even if he can't, you know, lift something it's not met with that hostility. I know he's trying to probably emulate me like I was trying to do with my dad. Mm-hmm. Around that same time, I, I remember kept begging him to, you know, can I go to the gym with you? Can I see the boxing ring? Can I see the weights? And the gym was about two miles away. And so my dad said, yeah, if you can keep up with me, you'll go. You can go. Wow. And what he meant by that was he was going to run to the gym. And being in, you know, second grade, not knowing any better, no problem. Well, I got left in the dust and left pretty far away to and from the gym. And 
eventually when I got to the gym, I got chewed out in the parking lot. Um, he went up and lifted weights, and I remember some guy just, you know, asking me if I wanted to shoot baskets, and that was the first time I can remember um, shooting on a 10-foot basketball. And I remember he mm. was, I couldn't get the ball quite up, so he taught me how to do an underhand shot. Um, so I can remember that. Not too long after that, um, we put up a basketball hoop at our house, and I ended up shooting the ball up, and it, it, it bounced off in a weird way where when I went to catch it, it caught my finger and broke my finger. And my dad made my mom, my sister, and I walk to the hospital because he didn't want to stop working on his van. Um, I also got to meet my current stepmom around that time too um and I, I i remember this because this was really cool we went to this um kids fun day thing and it was laser tag now if you've ever been to a, mil a big military base like fort campbell they have like all this area where they do like real train-ups and so like you were as a kid being the real gi joe playing laser tag and <clears throat> he was talking to um, a woman who later turned out to be my current stepmom. So during that time, um, you know, my dad was being unfaithful to my mom. Um, not terribly long after that, we took a trip. Um, we had just gotten a puppy that my dad was not too nice to. Um, we took how, how old are you now? I'm about six, 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 six and a half, somewhere in there. Okay. We take a trip up to Wisconsin to see my mom's family, and my dad one day called and told my mom not to come back. Um, so my mom had been out of the military now for seven-ish years. She was part of the last graduating class for the Women's Army Corps. Um, now at this time, like, you could not, once you were out, you couldn't go back in. And my mom would have actually gone back in had it been an option. So here we are, out of state, nowhere really to go now and eventually my dad for whatever reason agreed to allow us to come back but it wasn't too long after that where you know my mom had asked me some questions about what i saw with his interactions with my current stepmom and then it was over and then um, my mom essentially packed her shit and we got the hell out of there and it's weird with the military like the divorce went really really quickly i remember but then now we're in north central Wisconsin. Um, and, you know, that was, I, I remember, one of my earliest remembers, uh, memories of Wisconsin was in elementary school when um, I was called the N-word for the first time. And not a clue what that meant. You know, I, I was really naive to concepts of race and identity growing mm -hmm. up, early growing up, because... On a military base, it is very diverse. I remember um, the house next to us was an African-American man and a woman from Korea that were married and had kids. White families, biracial, mixed families, like everything. So, like, I didn't know... I didn't know what race was. And so I remember asking my mom what that word meant, and I remember her crying. And to me, that was like... The, I was initiated now into a world that 
with Shayton, um, mm-hmm. awareness I have. I knew it wasn't a good word because of how it was said and the context it was said. So now I have kind of this new <clears throat> identity, um, a lot of confusion. Um, yeah, I, I just, you know, I think when I, th- I was thinking about this the other day, actually, um, this concept of what it means to have a home. And I've never like felt that. I feel like, I feel like I'm just visiting. Um, even now? Even now. Mm-hmm. Even now. Yeah, every everything feels like it's on borrowed time. Um, yeah, growing up in north central Wisconsin was... Um, it's funny because a lot of people, I think, would be shocked based on kind of the appearances of things, but I was miserable growing up. Um, Shocked as in if they saw you, you know, it it wouldn't look like it from the outside the way you're carrying yourself. Yeah. People don't, people, you know, largely don't have a clue um, what it was like growing up within, you know, the environment that I was in. Now, I have happy memories. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and, and say that everything was awful, but um, it never, like, you never felt settled. Mm-hmm. I always felt like I'm kind of borrowed time for some reason. Um, like I have, like I felt that there was somewhere else better to be. Um, yeah, even today I still kind of, I, I still feel like, so when you say borrow time, like help me understand what you mean by that. Um, by borrow time, what I mean is keep the, the act up before, before you kind of crumble, I think emotionally. Um, I would say much of my life has been acting as if. Um, you know, whether that being, you know, having to be the strong person for a relationship or not wanting to appear to be ungrateful or aggressive. Um, so, yeah. If, if it's all right yeah. with you, um, you know, thinking about that acting as if, you know, how, ha- how has it or how had it protected you, though, you know, kind of through those. Yeah experiences of trauma you know yeah i mean family violence there's there's some resiliency that comes with it no doubt about that i you know it's it's afforded me um some of those happy happy memories Um, but i also think like you know it saved a lot of pain and what i mean by that is if i were to be truly honest all the time, especially growing up, it would have, there would have been a lot of consequences for that. And I, and I look at that with my family much later in life that, um, I grew up in um, not just my, my immediate family, but the extended family. Um, they don't like truth. Um, you get punished and isolated if you're honest about stuff. So 
there was a lot of things that I had to kind of keep quiet about mm-hmm. to maintain that balance. Um, but no, I, you know, especially with, I, I think the stuff that's going on right now with the, the, the conversation around race relations in our country, what people don't understand is like, it's been cathartic to talk about race. It's mm-hmm. like I've been waiting for 33 years to finally have this conversation and it's it, it comes in waves as well early on it came in heavy waves but it comes in waves now where it's like you just for for once in your life you feel like people have an actual interest and investment in listening and hearing mm-hmm. and acting you know that's to be determined if any of this is going to pan out or not but you know for the first time it's like people like care it's been been odd so in that in that i've heard that a lot more lately Mm -hmm. uh that that sentiment and then then the follow-up question of like you know in these 33 years you say you've been you know waiting right to have a conversation like this what about now feels qualitatively different from you know arguably all the opportunities we've had as a society to address this what's different to you now I think what's different is I think superficially people don't want to be on the wrong side of history. Mm. I think it's, I think for a lot of people, it's, they don't want to be labeled that not so good thing. Um, And so they'll do what they have to do to, you know, do just enough listening and enough empathy work. So they're not labeled as the other. I Mm -hmm. think that's a big thing. I also think that, you know, seeing George Floyd murdered on live TV, unfortunately, I think it took that. I think it took seeing, um, you know, white women getting hit with uh, rubber bullets. You know, this was, this, what we're seeing on TV, um, people have been hidden from. I kind of liken it to, and, I, and I've asked some people about this, like when people saw Vietnam, the Vietnam War from their dinner table, how that shift perspectives of war, mm-hmm. about war. I sense some of that is going on a little bit. Um, you know, one of the, the hallmark, you know, foundational things that it shaped me, especially when I was younger, was the Rodney King beating. Mm-hmm. I remember that. Oh, my God. I, I just, you know, and, and while I, I, I didn't have any sort of relationship with my dad or that side of the family, um you know, their skin looked like his. And I remember seeing that, and my automatic thought was, is that going to happen to my dad or my grandfather or, you know, my brother, um, Mm -hmm. uncles, cousins, you know. That was very real for me. And what's the the most indicting thing about it for me was uh, I always had, like, this weird understanding of what it felt like to be kind of helpless. And I think watching my mom struggle growing up, just watching how, like, I felt like she, I don't know, it's not like people didn't help her out, but they weren't supportive. There's a difference between helping somebody out and being supportive. Yeah. And watching those officers watch the other officer beat the holy hell out of Rodney King, that that's, that's what gets me. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, same thing with George Floyd, watching the other people just standing there. That's what gets mm-hmm. me. Um, mm-hmm. But, I, you know, Rodney King was a game changer for me. Like, it was the first time that I've seen that type of violence mixed with racism, and it became yeah. pretty scary to me, I would say. Yeah, so it had a profound impact on your identity as a biracial male and the, and the dangers of that. Yep. And I want to point out that despite the fact that that was broadcast as widely and discussed and there, you know, there was an uprising around it, it didn't change white America. No, no, it, you know, with, you know, technology advances and stuff like that, you know, you, you go from communities to, you know, I would say domestic communities to now international communities being the big, big difference. Mm -hmm. You know, in terms of like the identity of the biracial male thing, that where I grew up at, you had to like buy your blackness. So here's what I mean by that. If you could afford the right clothes or the right shoes or have the money for the right CDs, um, you were deemed more culturally competent um, and would qualify it would qualify you to have experienced the black experience more than somebody that's biracial like me. So, you know, where I grew up at, if you, you know, weren't an athlete and you were, you know, non-white, you kind of had to like, I don't know, you had to have kind of like your own niche, which is really weird to to think about. So there's two African-American students that, they were two years older than me, um, both phenomenal athletes. So in a lot of degree, they were kind of untouchable. Um, mm-hmm. In my grade, there were no more than three at any given time. Um, the classes below me, I think just one oh. an American student. Um, but no, like if you could wear the right clothes and, you know, have the right jersey, like, it made you, you could be a, a, a white kid from the country, but if you had the right apparel and gear, you were deemed as kind of black. So, yeah, this whole, like, racial identity thing has been something that's been, um, I've been all over the map about, you know, on one hand, um, I mean, you get it from all ends, really. I mean, mm-hmm. you get in a weird way, you're a subject matter expert of all things race when you're biracial. But um, yeah, it's been that's been a very complex kind of part of my identity too. In addition to, you know, what it means to be a man, you know, growing up with not a lot of money, um, seeing kind of the power hierarchy of people that had money. It's been just very, very complex and it, that might lend to understand you know for people to understand why i never feel settled mm-hmm. i mean the damn goalpost keeps moving mm-hmm. yeah and one thing that 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 i'll be following up is ideas about masculinity and ideas about racial identity as a clinician or as, you know somebody in this field i i want to go back to where you left off you know because you talked about being in Kentucky and, and on a base that was racially and ethnically diverse, you lived in Germany and then you come back and now, now you're in uh, Wisconsin 
uh, not racially diverse, uh, primarily white. You're in, let's say, you know, you're in high school, you know, you're experiencing perhaps overt uh, racism for the first time as a, as a young kid, uh, certainly surrounded by covert stuff. What are you thinking? You know, you're here in high school. What are you thinking about your future? Like, you know, what is it you envision yourself as you're kind of trying to navigate these different identities? Well, it was it was put in my head at a very young age that I wasn't cut off for college. Um, By whom? Family. Mm. Um, I never knew how teachers felt about me. I mean, there there were there were a couple that really stand out who. Like my eighth grade English teacher, um, who um, was also a member of our church, and like she, you know, I, you know, I sing her praises to this day. It was cool to be able to see her last summer when I was traveling around the state doing training. But you know, she just kind of took time in like, you know, I mean, she showed me that she really cared, and you know, and she's one of the people I, you know, thank all the time for just giving me something, I guess, positive to look for at school. Um, mm-hmm. But no, my, my, my destiny was um, factory work, if not in trouble. Um, military was probably the best option. Um, mm-hmm. But I couldn't, I couldn't, you know, for a lot of people, measure up to, um, you know, other family members or my peers in terms of academic stuff. Um, mm-hmm. It was, that was my future. Um, I don't like, I never, I don't remember being a kid thinking about their future too much. I don't. Um, I ended up, you know, matter of fact, my graduation night, June 4th, 1998, um, I had a family member saying that they didn't think I would make it. They thought I would be, you know, in trouble with the law or something by now. So, I mean, that, that was my congratulations. Oh. <laughs> um, you know, what, and what's weird, Ryan, too, is like I did not have, you know, I had one significant run-in with the law, but otherwise I was as, as harmless and docile as they came. Mm-hmm. You know, what you have to understand is the depictions of black males that I had growing up was um, – or the messages about black males was don't be like your father. You know, mm-hmm. that's a pretty powerful statement, but also don't be like these gang bangers on TV or these, um, you know, predatory black men that were going around raping white women or trying to impregnate white women so they can get a free ride. I mean, that was shit that was planted in my head nonstop. Um, mm-hmm. You weren't a good enough athlete to be an athlete. So, you know, what's left for you? Um, factory work. Um, Oddly enough, I ended up like enlisting in the military between the, um, the summer of my junior and senior year. And I guess like <clears throat> my plan was just to do that. Um, you know, I didn't care for school, nor did I really try because what's the point? Like I did exactly what I needed to do to get by, um, but it was never a priority of mine. I didn't care. Oh, and you, and you were you were living up to the messages that were around you. Yeah, I I mean, yeah, right. I remember like those things were always you know I. One of the things that, 
you know, I, I had kind of working against me was um, my cousin, who was the best man at my wedding, um, the person who, you know, if I do my job right, halfway decent, you know, it, it, if he, if my son turns out halfway like my cousin does, I've done my job as a father. But my, my cousin, you know, to his credit, he was all everything. Um, kind man, very kind, gentle man, very intelligent, good athlete, could get along with everybody. Um, also had a variety of advantages that I didn't have, um, mm-hmm. which he was born into. This isn't, uh, mm-hmm. you know, shame on you for, you know, you know, having a, a present father that did well financially. I mean, this, you know, it's not about that at all. It's just the reality of the situation. Um, that was the goalpost. That was the benchmark. Uh-huh. Um, I remember one time talking about college. I think it was my sophomore year of high school. And one of my aunts jumped in right away and said, well, you don't have the grades like he does, so get that out of your head. So, you know, that was my... I don't know. And while I never felt like in competition with him, that's mm-hmm. where, you know, who people were measuring me up against. But mm-hmm. yeah, I, I mean, <clears throat> you know, in terms of like symbols of, of, of like racism, you know, growing up, I, you know, I, I would have people call me the N word, but change the ER to an A and thought that was okay. Um, I've had stuff written on my locker. Um, I had my sixth grade teacher, I remember one time I was just getting bombarded with it on the playground, and I came in really upset, and I'll never forget, he told me that it's just something I'm going to have to get used to. Um, so, you know. So, through those experiences, you know, who, if anyone, did you have to go to to process it, or was this something that you were stuck dealing with yourself at the time? Like, I think my mom got it, like, you know, she's, you know, she was called certain names and from what I've been told, um, was really, um, my, my grandfather who's passed now, um, not, a, I don't want to drag him through the coals because I, you know, will let sleeping dogs lie, um, but he passed and, um, he was not a very, let's see here, accepting man. <laughs> um, my sense is he had untreated PTSD from the Korean War um, and subsidized his treatment with drinking and other mm-hmm. things. And um, he just was not a very welcoming, accepting person from my experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think my mom got it from that. My mom tells a story about having to hide my dad in Louisville, Kentucky, because they drove into a Klan rally. Uh, uh-huh. So my mom, like, she got it and understood um, I, I guess, you know, let me circle back and I'll just, I'll just share one story about my grandfather that like, who was, you know, I give him credit. He tried with me like he, you know, he tried to take me ice fishing and fishing and stuff like that. Shit. I have no interest in, never <laughs> he, you know, he, I give him credit for that. Like he, he did, he did more than my dad did growing up. And that's like, I mean, that's, that's an indictment beyond belief, mm-hmm. but I will never forget. I was in fourth grade and we were up in Renocqua, Wisconsin. And anybody that grew up in the, the late eighties in Wisconsin, 
probably, if you were half paying attention, remember the big controversies around like spear fishing in Wisconsin, to the point where like protests and demonstrations got violent sometimes. Mm-hmm. Remember, for, I'll never forget we were in a bar. Um, it's a Friday night for a fish fry, and my grandfather told me to go sit next to this Native American man that he referred to as an Indian and ask him why he wants to spearfish. So I'm like fourth grade. Mm. And I knew just from being aware of the news and hearing people talk about it, this is probably something I shouldn't go do. But I was a little scared, and I went and I sat next to the man. And I just said hi, and the guy bought me a candy bar and gave me some money for the arcade games. That was it. That was it. That was it. Um, But I remember, and then when I came back, I remember my grandpa asking me what he said, and I just, I remember saying, I don't even know. Like, I didn't understand what he was saying. So that's the type of, um, yeah, I, I just remember. Man, like, what, 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 what do you make of that? Like, what, you know, what was it that you, um, now looking back, what, what was being asked of you? Your guess is as good as mine. I don't like, the question I have is if I would have actually done that and he would have reacted, what the outcome would have been. Um, mm-hmm. I'm guessing not a real good one. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just like sensed, you know, danger around that. Yeah. I felt like a setup. Yeah. It, it just, it, it was really, really uncomfortable. But yeah. So you were asking about like who I had to, you know, Debrief or process with process, yeah. There wasn't anybody. Okay. Um, You know, it was get over it, move on. Um, More of the well, if you do this, you wouldn't have to worry about that. If you wouldn't wear this, you wouldn't have to worry about that. You know, but it was centered. It was centered around you, right? It was like, yeah, if you 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 can avoid this by doing X, Y, or Z. Yes, yes. yes. It's it's not the people around you that are the problem. Yeah, and it, you know, yeah, it's, it's, and maybe this is hyperbolic, but it's almost the equivalent of, well, if you went to warn that, this would have happened. Like, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. it's, it's never the other person, it's always with you. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, in between my junior and senior year, I enlisted in the military um, because, like I said, what the hell was I going to do? I've done a lot of processing about that actually in the past week because last Wednesday would have been 22 years in the military. Um, And, you know, number one, I I didn't feel like I had many options. Um, But I don't want people to, you know, mistake this. Like I, you know, I I do have, you know, the utmost respect for, um, you know, folks that enlist and, and, you know, want to do this, do that job. But for me, it was never about, you know, honor, flag, and country. It was like out, you know. It's, yeah. And it was a, it was an, a roundabout way to, I think, connect with my parents too. To both it was familiar. It was a yeah. You know, grew up in that. It was, there was there was a sanctuary around the military in terms of, you know, more people that might look like you. Or have some shared experiences. Um, so yeah, so it, senior year goes through. Um, I'm enlisted. I'm signed up. I, you know, 
you know, up until that point, since 1988 to 1998, I've seen my dad one time. Um, brief, you know, I swear to God, the drive up to Wisconsin was longer than the stay. Um, but yeah, summer 1998, I ship out to Fort Knox, Kentucky, which oddly enough was where I was born. Wow. Um, go through basic training. Um, didn't complete basic training because I collapsed actually twice during training exercises. Now, this is where the pre-existing heart condition comes in. Um, yeah. I had to get like five different waivers to get in and multiple chip, excuse me, multiple uh, trips to the military entrance processing station in Milwaukee. Like there are people that had to sign their life away for me to enlist. Mm-hmm. Um, going through basic training, um, we were on our way to the last phase for graduation and we just got done with a march and I fell out. Like I just like, I don't know. I, I, I the next thing I know was um, I remember looking around and a lot of people were pounding water and stretching cause they were cramping. And then next thing I know, one of the drill instructors, um, is over me yelling my name and I kind of come to, then I get rushed to the same hospital I was actually born in. <laughs> so I like, I went home to die. You can't make this up. Yeah. It's uh-huh. so, um, I love basic training though. That was fun. Um, the thing what I about it? What about it? Yeah. The drill instructors were hilarious. Okay. Um, I've always been a person who, in discomfort, well, I, I would say growing up more, when I was uncomfortable, I would try to make things fun. Um, not so much now. Um, I'd like to think I've evolved and matured a little bit, but I remember our drill instructors being really funny. They were assholes, especially mm-hmm. a couple of them, but they were just funny. Like, I would, I got in so much trouble for like laughing in formation. Mm-hmm. They were just like, and they weren't like trying to be funny. They were like just making fun of us and uh-huh. on us and saying some just just despicable things that would come out of their mouth. But I don't know for whatever reason, like I don't know if it was the cadence or the comedic timing, but damn it, it was funny. Mm-hmm. Um, but I ended up getting you know kicked out, so that was my life. Like I knew exactly what I wanted to do. Uh, um, that was how I was going to spend the next 20 years of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to finish my training. I wanted to go to jump school. Um, I wanted to go to a couple specialty schools. Um, like I, I was in it for the long haul. Like I, no questions. Like, so <clears throat> I remember one of the uh, the docs came in and flat out asked me um, what I wanted to do. And I said, I, I want to stay in, you know, and didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Um, it's weird because there were some kind of things going on back at home, too, um, that I know probably contributed to my stress. Um, but. Yeah, I got my shipping papers, um, and I ended up coming back to north central Wisconsin, um, a failure. 
No plans. Another door closed. Slam shut. Padlock. Many times over. Um, I try to get back in through ROTC a couple times, but no go. Mm-hmm. And even by then, I, I, I don't think I really wanted to go. I it just, you know, it, it's. I don't even know what how to, how to describe it, but but I came back um, embarrassed, sad. All my friends were off to college. Here I am, alone. Like, um, I remember things like just feeling different with, you know, with my mom especially. Um, yeah, you know, just yeah, it was awful, not having any plans. Um, yeah. Not sure what to do. So then I, I meet you years later when you're getting your first master's degree. Mm-hmm. So what happened in between those spaces? So I get back. Um, I ended up going back to a grocery store that I worked at in high school. Uh, this was my very first job. Uh, but I ended up like agreeing to kind of part ways because my performance and attendance was so bad because um, one, I'd been kind of closet drinking. um, And second, I was just devastated. Um, Mm -hmm. By that time, um, over the time when I was gone, um, an aunt of mine had moved back in to our house and she had spent some time living with us when I was growing up and um, was not a good experience with her living there, uh, which I'll, I'll talk about that coming to a head many, many years later. But um, I remember getting the impression that you're no longer kind of welcome here. You got to figure this out by yourself. Mm-hmm. So my, my, my cousin that I talked about earlier, his mom and dad took me in as they always did growing up. Um, They were, you know, unfortunately that relationship is very severed um, now, but growing up they were always kind of a a safe haven and did a lot for me growing up. Um, So I Mm -hmm. would stay with them for a while. Um, But I remember like um, it being a very, very hard few months I skipped Thanksgiving that year. Um, I slept in my car for Christmas. Um, But before that, it was in like in October, and we had a UW extension. And one of my good friends um, took me to this college fair. And I was just like, I don't want to go. Like, I don't have the grades. I don't want to do this. Like, I, I just getting kicked out of the army was, that was a sign for me. Mm -hmm. You are destined to, you know, you know, do nothing. I don't know if it was like Mm -hmm. self-fulfilling prophecy or I'm a person that believes in energy. So, you know, sometimes the world tells you something you need to listen, Um, Mm -hmm. but he like 
I still don't understand how he got me out the door that day. Um, but I ended up going and I ended up talking to um, this woman named Kathy Kiefer, who was in the admissions department at UWL, and I just I don't I don't even know how. I ended up at the UWL table. Uh, my cousin was going to school here, and a bunch of people I knew went to school here. Yeah. And so I started talking to her, telling her kind of my situation and story, and I don't know how, but she pulled strings, and next summer I'm on campus. Um, 14, I'm an ACT. Barely graduated high school. I didn't tell you this part, so... One of the classes my last semester of my senior year, my first hour class was psychology. Really? Yeah. And the guy, the psychology teacher, Mr. Miller, who was um, in, the, in the National Guard at the time, was a veteran, was our psych teacher. Now, keep in mind, I have the next 20 years of my life planned out. I don't care. Blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. He came up to me the week of graduation and showed me the grade book. And he said, I did some checking and he said, you aren't going to be able to graduate. Okay. So I'm like, well, what the (laughs) I ship out June 17th to graduate June 4th. But then he says this, he said, but I'm going to pass you because you need boot camp. Oh. So it's funny how things come full circle. Like <laughs> psychology teacher in high school, <laughs> like, you know, did me, you know, the biggest favor ever. Now, mind you, where I went to high school, if you were an athlete and didn't have the grades, they would fudge the grade book a little bit. Uh, uh-huh. And, you know, nobody wants to talk about that, but it, it's mm-hmm. it happened. But, you know, in this case, Miller did what he had to do to, you know, well, as he put it, I needed boot camp. Um, mm-hmm. So I guess I, 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 I doubt it felt like a favor at the time. I don't know, like the way he phrased it, or I don't know. Well, I, I guess you know, truthfully, um, boot camp was welcome compared to if I wouldn't have gotten the grade. I mean, I, I don't, I can't even imagine if. I went to graduated high school or been mm-hmm. on the fast track to complete my diploma in summer school. Like mm-hmm. I just, Oh my God. Like, I, and, and I guess I meant like, did you, did, did you receive it as, as kind of a supportive nudge or was it not when he's like, Hey, I'm doing you a favor. Um, well, that's a good question. I, I don't know. I do know though that I was terrified. And for the rest of that week, I made sure I was in class. Um, I I remember just being, you know, a lot of my life, especially growing up, was things were done um, very fear-based. So Mm -hmm. um, very compliant, you know. But I get on campus the summer of um, 1999. Um, So the previous summer I was in boot camp. Summer, I'm on campus, um, and I mean, my first like semester of, of college was horrible. 
I think my GPA was like 1.7, if that. Um, it was a hard transition for me because yeah. I, number one, didn't know <clears throat> how to study. Sure. I didn't know how to do schoolwork. Um, socially, it was very awkward. So this was the first, this was a real, I remember being very, very, um, it was very, very confusing in terms of racial dynamics when I came to UWL. Yeah. Um, like it was so fucked up at one time where I would have separate outfits depending on where I was going and who I was with. Um, wow. Yeah. You, you, had to, you had to spend the time and energy trying yeah. to time, energy, figure and out money. Yes. Um, yeah, freshman year was really, really hard. Um, and I would say an ongoing theme for college was this duality. Like, mm -hmm. this, you literally had to turn it on and turn it off in a heartbeat. Um, and growing up where I grew up at, it was very hard for me to interact with black people biracial people it was really really hard for me because I, I didn't like in my skewed view of the world because I was deprived of different interactions I, I like I felt like I didn't know how to mm -hmm. I still struggle today too like I I get a lot of anxiety around acting appropriate if you will You know, even today as a professional, I feel like I'm constantly walking on eggshells in terms mm -hmm. of how to talk to people. But I remember my, my undergraduate or, you know, college was being really challenging um, in terms of how to interact with people. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah, I look at undergraduate and you know, my high school years. And I'm one of those people that I remember kind of like symbols or I'm the person that will hear a song on the radio and will have to change the radio before the station because it reminds me of something. Uh -huh. Here's about a, I mean, from the years of 1995 to 2005, you know, between high school and, and finishing undergrad, um, I just prefer not to remember. I just, you know, I just wish, I don't know, I prefer not to. And, and undergrads included in that. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. I, I just wish none of it happened. It, it, I don't know. It set me back quite a bit, I think. Mm hmm well, I was going to ask you at some point, I mean, I'll ask you now since you've uh, been talking about it, you know, you live and work in a county that where 90% of the population is racialized as non-Latinx white, right? And, you know, 10% racialized as people of color. And, and our campus, UWL's campus reflects that. And so, you know, I, I was wondering, like, how, how have your lived experiences as a, as a biracial person? played out as college student there and now as a community member and professional. 
I don't think it's any different. Um, right. No. One thing I have learned is it doesn't matter your degree, your credentials, the alphabet behind your name. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter. Um, I feel the same. Like, I know, like, rationally, I know this isn't true, but, like, <clears throat> in weird ways, emotionally, I feel the exact same. Mm-hmm. I feel no different. Like, I feel, you know, the stuff on my wall behind me doesn't represent my, like, worldview on stuff. Um, mm-hmm. It's weird because, like, even when I, you know, professionally meet people for the first time, whether it's, you know, clinical or, you know, the academic stuff, I feel I'm behind the eight ball. Like, I feel like mm-hmm. I'm not. And I don't deem myself as an expert in anything, but I feel like that I am not qualified no matter mm-hmm. what. Um, and I think there's various things in the professional community, especially around here, which is very, very, um, it's like a popularity contest around here. Like you have to have grown up here to have any type of stake in or say in anything. It's really, really weird. Um, but no, I'm reminded pretty frequently professionally about where I stand. Um, you know, academically, not so much. Like I, I think, you know, for me, I guess like, Maybe this is department specific, but I've never felt, I don't know, like separate. But my work as a therapist, oh, definitely. Like, it's, mm. it's weird. How's that show up? You know, for, because I, you know, you, you teach a lot of students, and I suspect you may be involved in supervision, you know, so, so, you know, what, what would you tell to an undergraduate student aspiring to become a mental health clinician, um, you know, particularly about how you're, ex- yeah, your experience as a as a biracial man, even uh, not not just biracial person. Like, how is how are you seeing racism show up in mental health work? Um, people lacking energy, and what I mean by energy is not going the extra mile to consider certain things. Um, you know, when they conceptualize the the the, the what's the word I'm looking for. The situation a person's in, when you conceptualize it, it's complex. Mm-hmm. Um, you're, talking about, you're talking about clinic uh, clinicians here conceptualizing, yes. trying to make sense of clients. Yep, yep. Okay. Um, it's it's complex, um, and there's not a lot of energy around complexity. There is a lot of judgment about clients. Okay. Um, which is a complete turnoff to me. Like mm-hmm. you, professionally, are going to chastise and make fun of your clients you know like i think there's there, there needs to be room professionally for us to kind of laugh about stuff i think that's what keeps sanity but if your clinical approach is to demean the client um yikes i, I, I want mm-hmm. nothing to do with that i i think one of the things that <clears throat> i have struggled with in this community is I feel like there there are moments where I feel um, in some ways forgotten about. So like, I think it was last spring, not this past spring, the spring before, they had something here in the community about working with um, 
multicultural um, families in terms of like trauma related stuff and you know there aren't many of us doing this work in this area and yeah. I found out about it because my wife had asked me if I was going to it I was like what the hell is this um, again, and then it's, it becomes very like, who's the in crowd people and inviting now more and more people have been knocking on the door, asking me to be a part of this, this, and this. And I, I just, <laughs> I don't know. Um, I, I don't, I don't know. I, I guess why now? Hmm. Why now? Um, I've been here. The, I've been here all along. Why now? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And I guess again, it goes back to this energy about the complexity of the situation um, of situations that people want my help addressing in the community. I've tried, mm -hmm. like I have tried addressing mental health stuff and understanding trauma, but that's not where people want to go with it. Um, and for me, I, I guess, you know, respectfully, we're putting band-aids on gaping wounds if we're not going to do the real work. Mm -hmm. um, and what do, you, what do you see as the real work that needs to be done, either either here in La Crosse County Mental Health Services or broadly in the field? Well, I think broadly in the field, it's, it's this deep dive into the, the root causes of mental health addiction, understanding trauma, understanding the role parenting plays into it. Um, you know, I, I would say those things. There's a lot of, <clears throat> you know, I think hypocrisy with some of it. Um, I've worked, you know, I've worked in juvenile justice long enough to know that it is terrifying for families to revisit their trauma. No mm -hmm. doubt about it. I mean, what family really wants to do it? The, the thing about it, though, is that that's where the work needs to happen. Um, otherwise, it's going to be the same old pattern over and over and over again. And I tried to lend some voice to that in the past, and it's just been shut down. I've been seen as, I can tell you... Um, and this is where that duality thing comes in. Like for me, when I speak up about things or because I, you know, it, it's, it's weird being in my position. I, I'll put it that way. So I have worked in the domestic violence field. Um, I've worked with children who have been trafficked. I have worked with juvenile offenders and their families. It's really, really weird because you know, on one hand, you have a man who has no problem whatsoever working with really, really tough cases, but it's almost like you feel this exclusion to a degree because you don't fit the prototype of who would work with that population. But then when I get into other arenas, I'm seen as whitewashed because uh, I talk to clinical or, you know, it just, you can't win. Uh -huh. You just absolutely can't win. Mm -hmm. I'm I, I, I'm struck by how similar this feels to what you're saying earlier about, you know, 
the, the adultery outside world, people telling you who you are and what you can be under, on, on their terms uh, or their expectations. So here you are, multiple degreed, licensed, uh, and, and you're feeling it even professionally that some spaces are that only want to see a part of you yep. uh, and don't see you as a whole. Yeah, it's, um, I, you know, one thing for me is I, I try to take pride in is I'm very, um, I consider myself to have a pretty big range in terms of topics I can work with. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I like, it's, that's just how I operate. I don't know. I get bored otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, I need to do multiple things. Um, I feel you. Yeah. <laughs> I get bored. Like I just, I just do. Um, but yeah, that's been hard to navigate professionally. This people want you to be one way or one thing, and it's just like, uh, no, no. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, that that feeds into this not feeling settled. Mm-hmm. This feeling like I'm visiting. Um, yeah, I'm getting that now. Mm-hmm. You know, in a much different way um so i want to say this to the audience because you know I, I i got your consent to ask you this question you know because it came up you know one of the ways i know you is from our men's discussion group about 15 years ago on campus and what i want the audience members to know that that i have i have shared this comment that you had made at the time um you know i shared anonymously in my men and masculinity course over the years when we talk about men's body image because i think it was such a profound um insight and and students appreciate it so i'm going to share what you had said and then ask you know ask you to reflect a bit on it uh, and maybe even connect to some of the things that you've been saying so for those that don't know it you know james has been involved in competitive uh, bodybuilding over the years um and you you had said that you know, you, you always saw yourself as kind of this you know scrawny you know kid and then eventually when you started lifting and you you know you developed all this muscle mass and you built this you know the idea was maybe if I get big enough and strong enough I'll I'll feel the confidence project that confidence you know of, of somebody in that body and you said what instead happened was your body grew up around you and you still it was a shell and you still felt like that little boy on the inside uh, and i just found that to be so profound and so i i'm asking you now if you know if you reflect upon what that meant or how that's shown up in your life yeah um i would say today um, there's a lot of truth to that yet um, although my my <clears throat> my thinking around that type of stuff has changed quite a bit, I would say, um, in terms of the purpose it has in my life. But, you know, I think it's all about image and presentation. Um, Mm -hmm. Acting as if. And, yeah, Mm -hmm. I would say that they're, like, the, I think the, um, the emotional maturity for some things or emotional intelligence was always there, but it was the inability to, I think, tap into it to allow myself to, to grow from it. Um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> lifting was, you know, a great, 
cover up escape. It provided a social outlet. Um, mm-hmm. But I never really like liked it. It was a means to an end for me. Um, you know, growing up where there was heavy premium placed on sports and athletics, but never measuring up to the mark too, I think fueled some of that as well. So my peers who maybe after college let themselves go, you know, I would be doing this other parallel process where I was kind of coming into my own physically. So, I mean, there was a weird sort of satisfaction with that. Um, I think a lot of it had to do with presentation of power. So uh-huh. when I was in ninth grade, um, remember I think about sports and growing up in sports today, like, you know, sports is just like the stuff that we're doing in this country right now to bring sports back is just, stupid. it just, <laughs> it, it, it is. And, and I love sports. I spend way too much time caring about them and talking about them. I have my rooting interests, you know, it's just stupid. The the premium in stock we place on athletics is just so ridiculous. And I know people will say, well, all the life lessons, blah, 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 blah. If you got to depend on sports for life lessons, I, I'm sorry that you grew up in a household where those life lessons weren't available to you. I just don't mm-hmm. operate that way. My kid will not have to depend on extracurricular activities to help shape me. I, I just, mm-hmm. you know, for, for me, I probably was looking for that. For other people, they probably needed that. Okay. My ninth grade year um, in basketball. So my mom at the time was kind of piecing together work, um, odd jobs. My mom did, I mean, what she had to do. And for our basketball program, there was at the beginning of the year this like fundraiser they did. And the expectation was you contributed to the fundraiser. Well, the week the money was due, my mom lost her job. And I explained this to the coach. And the coach flat out said to me, if you can't contribute, you can't get playing time. Wow. Yeah. Um, Pay to play. Yeah, kind of. I mean, if you look at a lot of little leagues and a lot of, middle school, high school, stuff like that, um, there is a pay-to-play component to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, don't know, I, I don't know what else to say about that. It's just the reality. So I didn't know what this meant at the time, but I do know that I was, like, demoted, essentially. Um, no playing time whatsoever. And, you know, what pisses me off about this is this particular coach has – grown in the ranks in the school district that I went to high school in and I mean he's he's just a fucking dick like, mm-hmm. I don't care like he matter of fact I saw him last summer um, and he wouldn't even like look at me you know he saw him uh-huh. <laughs> um, shame will do that but I well I, but and I would have asked him too what the hell was this about man mm-hmm so what was even more interesting about it was the next year for my sophomore year, my sophomore basketball coach said to me, what happened to you last year was complete bullshit. Mm-hmm. So there was like awareness of what was going on. 
like mm-hmm. people, people knew but you know like we're talking about now if you want to be anti-racist you call out the bullshit well if you want to be you know anti-bullying you call it out but nobody did for whatever reason mm-hmm. um so going back to like the the lifting thing um i knew from pretty early on that money was important it was powerful the kid that had to go check to see if the child support checks were on point every month. Like I, I knew the importance of money. Mm-hmm. Um, so if I didn't have money, if I didn't have the right shade of skin, um, I can look menacing or intimidating. Um, mm-hmm. And that, that's something that's backfired over the years, actually, in terms of people being intimidated by me, which is just like, yeah. oh, God. Um, like I get it, but you know, people don't like, and, and, and there's no way they would know. Um, but if yeah. people only knew, like, how fragile, and even today, like, right. there's some fragility about me. There definitely is. Like, I'm more, more comfortable with, and more confident in what I know I'm good at. But I'm still quite fragile. And I can, can I ask you, James? Though, when you, when you when you say fragility, uh, do you mean a, a, a tenderness or are you saying I still feel very fragile? And, Both. And, Both. Okay. Yeah. So stuff with the military, tenderness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, things professionally have turned out okay. And I still have like, I don't think I've hit my ceiling yet in terms of mm-hmm. how I'm going professionally, like I, you know, this is like, I feel early, early in the chapters of my book. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, fragile, definitely. Um, I miss having a family that's now completely divided. Um, I wish I had a home, you know, I wish I had a sense of belonging and stability, like, and that's not to take away from, you know, my wife and son. Mm-hmm. It's, got, it's got nothing to do with that. But I just, it would be nice to get up one morning and just be able to consistently give them the best version of myself and not constantly trying to chase. Like, I'm, I'm going to be chasing for a long time. I already know that. I, mm-hmm. I, know, I know that I'll know when I know that I've, I've, I've made it and I'm good. Um, but I'm going to be chasing. I, I'm quite relentless when it comes to, um, trying to find my way. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't know if that answers your question about the, you know, what I had said in in the group and, you know, there's, there's a lot of that. I mean, there's, there's so much of that, that I think we, you know, we as people do to, mask those things yeah yeah. you know and for me like oh my gosh like so much wasted time um but i you know it it was a box i think i had to check Mm -hmm. it was a box well well, what's what what strikes me about it though is what you were talking about earlier in this you've got all these letters you know, behind your name and you've got multiple degrees and it's like, no matter how many letters you add, there's still you on the inside feeling like I don't belong here. Mm-hmm. 
right? Or this isn't enough. And so that, I mean, that that was the the, the connection I was making between that and, and then just the physicality from years before. So you know, you just said that you know I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna keep pressing on. I'm gonna keep achieving, and I'll know one day. But I, I wanted to ask you, this, and maybe this is a tough question. Maybe you don't have an answer to it now. But but what would have what would have, have have to be different structurally? Just say like here in your life at UWL, at the clinic you work at, in the community, to take that burden off. Like, how does the structure have to change for you to be okay <laughs> and content? Or is that possible? Um. So when I think about that, what would have to happen, um, what comes to mind is kind of like this piece or, or, or closure with some things. Mm. Um, one of the things I, I've struggled with in my life is I seek closure from areas that are not capable of giving me closure. And, like what? Well, I think it was around the same time um, let's see here. No, it would have been a few years after I was in group with you. Um, I had sent a letter I had written to family members and a few close friends. I sent 19 total. Wow. And I had disclosed some things that had happened to me by a family member and um, the result of that was, um, and I was very, very direct in the letter too. Um, I had comments for a variety of family members. I called out hypocrisy. I called out the fact that my family has ridden the wave of my cousin's good name for a long time. And truthfully, that is the only reason anybody is taking our family seriously is because of my cousin. Um, so I sent out 19 letters disclosing and I am now not formally, but um, what's the word? Outcasted. So, now has anybody said, you're not welcome to this family, don't talk to me, stuff like that? No, they haven't. But, um, what that letter got met with was a lot of denial. Um, people were really, really pissed off. Mm -hmm. um, and for whatever reason, like, I seek, some people didn't respond. Um, I have one good friend who I know they got it they just never said anything and I'm one of those people where where you know silence is absolutely you know that doesn't work for me yeah but the I didn't know what to say is um it's um lazy and it's um I'll just leave it out lazy mm -hmm. um but I think, you know, it, it put a big wedge between my sister and I, for sure. Um, my relationship with my cousin is damaged because of that, because mm -hmm. it's the family meddling. So 
my cousin, um, I experienced a time um, in my mid to late 20s where um, I got laid off and things were very challenging. And my cousin um, helped me out a ton financially. Um, it got found out because of family doing some meddling and then the narrative was I was, you know, trying to get a free ride from my cousin. And anybody that knows anything about me, lazy is not part of my family. No. No. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that letter took away a lot from me. Um, so I think, you know, I don't know, I, like I, if people were to come and talk to me and be, you know, empathic and accepting, I don't like the time has been so long now that I don't know mm -hmm. if I would take it. Um, yeah, I just, this like, <clears throat> you know, between that and, you know, I think stuff with my dad kind of feeling like a castaway, um, or a throwaway or a mistake or you know, all these other labels. Like, those are the people, for whatever reason, I need validation from. I need confirmation that I'm okay, that yeah. I'm important. That you're good enough. That they believe me. Um, mm -hmm. It's weird because I have, you know, I have plenty of people in my life who tell me those things, and um, and, I, and I believe most of them. You know, sometimes I think people just say what they need to say to get out of an uncomfortable conversation. I get that. But I think it goes back to something John Bradshaw said about shame. And he said that shame develops when um, you're in your time of greatest need and people abandon you. About the last, I didn't hear the last part. So uh, the time of greatest need. People abandon you. People abandon you. So for me, that's what I kind of, you know, carry. I, I carry that with me. Mm -hmm. Press sending the letters. I don't at all. Um, that stuff needed to be said. Yeah. Um, but everything changed after that. Everything. Um, yeah. Yeah. The family stuff for sure is like, it sucks because I, you know, I, I always, I've always known that we, there's been friction and conflict in the family, but you know, damn it, everybody showed up for holidays and you could still count on certain family members, even if they didn't agree with everything you did and they just were, you know, I don't know. Like, but that letter changed mm -hmm. everything. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know. Um, you know, like, you know, stuff with my dad, not too long ago, he had made a comment to me that, I wanted a relationship with him. I would have to meet him halfway on it. I, well, yeah, exactly. And, you know, wow. he and I talked not too long ago and it went fine. Um, my son's got a lot of curiosity around him. But what I said, sure. to, what I said to my dad was, you know, I get I'm almost 40, but I'm still the child of this relationship. And I said, mm. under this condition, will my son feel like he has to be the one to initiate or is responsible for maintaining the relationship with I said, mm -hmm. I'm his dad. Like, that's like priority to me. Um, 
So I think it's it's a lot of that stuff. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I still, you know, about the, the comfort stuff, um, I still have, I'm, I'm, a, I'm still very leery of certain people, I'd say. Uh, mm-hmm. But I don't know. Like I, I in, in family or professionally? Both. Just in general. General, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, right. Yeah, I get really awkward in conversations with, you know, certain people in certain environments. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I think one of the things I, I, I keep wondering is, like, what, what would it be like to be around more people that look like me? You know what I mean? Like, would it be possible to be around more people that look like you and you can just kind of be because there's mm-hmm. kind of a, there's an unspoken understanding of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I have mm-hmm. no idea. I have no idea. But, you know, it's going to be, like I said before, <clears throat> I'm going to, you know, I keep going. I'm going to keep going. We have, keep going. <clears throat> I'll give you an example of having a hard time talking to people. So last week I shared with people that I had a pretty bad incident with somebody we hired to do some work on our house. Oh yeah, I saw this on Facebook. Now I'm not gonna name the person's name, but I, and I'm gonna tell you why. Um, but if people wanna direct message me and, and you know, I'll give them the name, but here's why I'm not gonna say their name. So the person that put me in a position last week that was just very uncomfortable, um, this person has a wife at home. And if this person is willing to treat a professional relationship and my wife the way that he did, I have no idea what goes on behind closed doors. Mm. And it is my job and it is our job, if you're a true advocate, is to not put this person's name in public because I feel I have a responsibility to protect his wife in the event there's shit that does go down behind closed doors. Mm-hmm. So I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna reiterate that again. Like, if people direct message me about the name, my expectation for you is, if, if you wanna out the person, just don't give them your business. But please don't go vocal with this and put this woman in potential harm's risk. So <clears throat> I need to say that because I've seen this before, like the, the, the type of behavior and attitude is of the fabric of somebody who has some power and control issues and is very insecure. Mm-hmm. So we had some work done in our house. Um, long story short, continuing to up the charges would yell at my wife, um, would take a very nasty tone with her, mumble under um, his breath at her. And my wife is going through some, you know, health stuff right now on top of everything. So, um, and my son's there too. So it's like, you know, grow the fuck up, man. So the day before um, he is supposed to be done with the job, he sends me a text message asking me to now sign the contract with this increased rate. Well, any contract work I've done, um, you get signatures on the front end, right? 
Mm -hmm. So I said, no, I will not be signing your contract and I will not be paying you the amount you requested because of, and I rattled off, you know, treatment of my wife and stuff like that. And so he sends me a text message and asks me to call him. I'm like, okay. So I called him and he just unloaded, your wife this, you need to do this with your wife, your wife that, like, really just unloaded, you're fucking me over. Now, what, what you need to understand is he's been priced the whole entire time, and I end up paying him like $500, roughly $500 more than the original quote, just mm-hmm. to get him the fuck out of my life. But I was not going to pay the additional 250 or whatever it was, not half mm-hmm. And so I had said, you know, now, now this, is, this is where the rub is. <clears throat> My interaction with this dude, an older white dude, I have to play it a certain way. Uh-huh. So I'm sitting here getting yelled at, screamed at, your wife this, your wife that. And I kept saying over and over again, I'm, I'm done with this conversation. I'm done with this conversation. Please finish. I'll pay you. No problem. Mm-hmm. And so my wife and I got to talking. And she's like, this is that's the exact way he would talk to And my wife's tough. I know she's not making this shit up. Mm -hmm. So I call him, or I call him back, and I'm like, you know what? Most of the stuff is done. There's some caulking that needs to be done. We can take care of that. And he's, you know, he's like, well, I would really like to finish the job, you know, and I want to be done with it. Um. And I was like, fine, but it has to be done tomorrow. And. What I'm about to say now is you got to understand the context of the times plus the context of my interactions with this person and how he's been towards my wife. Mm-hmm. He kind of chuckles and he said, you know, the caulk I use, you know what's on it? It says Negro. No. Okay. So I, my heart jumps into my throat. Ugh. Um, my wife heard, and I take a deep breath, and I said, yes, negro is Spanish for black. Mm-hmm. He's like, oh, well, I've never, I, I didn't know that. And I'm thinking to myself, Ugh. you're in your early 70s, you've done this type of work before, negro is on paint, caulk, mm-hmm. tape so on and so forth when it's black. Mm. So I'm sitting there and I'm just like, like deflated. Mm-hmm. Because on one hand, maybe he's just damn ignorant and doesn't know that. I don't know. But you got to understand the nature of the times right now, my interactions with him, how he's treating my wife, how he gave the impression that we work for him. He doesn't work for us. Yeah. It felt a certain way. I'm willing yeah. to be wrong on this, but I'm telling you how it felt. So the next day comes around and I sent him, I, I checked in with this, with some who I would say are very objective people I trust. And I'm like, you can tell me I'm overreacting. You can tell me that he is just 
uneducated or you know if you think he was really trying to send a message whatever yeah and they've all come back said he was trying to send a message every single one of them and i know there are people that i trust to say no james slow down here so what i've been doing this whole time is keeping track of our interactions matching my checks all that stuff mm-hmm. so i did an addendum to the statement that i created to talk about this recent interaction. Well, the next day rolls around and he's like, Hey man, you know, he's like, you know, when I, when I, when I said that about the the color of the cock, I didn't mean anything by that. And I'm like, well, I said, um, I said, I don't really feel like talking about that right now. Um, thank you for your work. You do wonderful work. Um, I'm sorry. I just didn't, you know, isn't going to work out for future jobs for you. And he said to me, I have so many friends that are black. Uh, and then the parting shot was, I'm sorry that you're too sensitive about this race stuff. And walks uh, so in my years of living, I have black friends and you're too sensitive around race stuff. That's traditionally been code for something for me. Sure. So here I am face to face with this older white man. My wife and my son are on the other side of the door. I am boiling at this point, but mm. I can't do anything. Right. Um, I got so worked up that night that I developed um, what I now know is a psychological fever. So I'm thinking, fuck, I got COVID. <laughs> like, uh. um, it took me about three hours to calm myself down. But my, my takeaway from that was I can't win. Mm-hmm. Like he won that because he's mm-hmm. working away with know, his money, mm-hmm. with his racism, and there's nothing I can do about it. So mm-hmm. the who is supposed to be the protector of the household can't protect the household, let alone himself. So you felt that way about yourself. Oh yeah. Oh, yes. And, and, and any time, like, stuff with race comes up or you feel threatened or, you know, I shared this in our department meeting with Festival of Foods last fall. Um, so it was a messed up day to begin with. I Most days I have to wear a suit. I consider messed up days because they're just too damn busy. If I'm in a suit, mm-hmm. it means I'm usually doing yeah. what I don't want to do. Um, All right. So, <laughs> and, and then... Me wearing a suit's important for context here. So, um, our son had a couple asthma attacks that day and went to the ER two times, and they finally admitted him. Mm-hmm. So, this is about four o'clock in the afternoon. He gets admitted. I'm supposed to meet with a client at six o'clock. My wife's got everything under control as usual. Says, "Go have your meeting because we're just going to be sitting here anyways." Okay. And so she's like, I just need you to go get the overnight bag. Cool. So I go to Festival Foods first. And I don't care naming the name here because I'm just, this is different. Um, Mm -hmm. So I go there, pick up some snacks for my wife. And I'm in the organic aisle. And in the middle of the organic aisle, there's um, there's an older white woman talking to a festival employee who... um, white woman looks younger 
and all the way at the end is this cart. And so I, whatever, you know, I walk by, excuse me, grab what I need to get. I'm looking for something else. And this older white woman walks down to um, her cart and gets it and pushes. And as she's walking by me, says, yeah, my husband's been on me about crime prevention and kind of looks at me. So not only do I have a suit on, I have my UWL name badge on. Yeah, it's, it's just, it's wonderful. And so there I am again in this situation where I can't say something. And a lot of people are like, yeah, tell her to fuck off. No, 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 no. no. Rules are different. Rules are different. Yeah. Yeah. So I walked by and I said, man, there's nothing in your cart I wanted. And she's like, well, I didn't mean it that way. So I leave. I'm fumed right now. My son's in the hospital. My wife's depending on me to bring my stuff. I have a client that has to meet with me. I got to go deal with our dogs and now I got to deal with this. So I run home, get the overnight bag ready, but I call a festival and I talk to the manager mm-hmm. and I just unloaded on him. And to his credit, he listened, he was pissed, he was embarrassed. So the next day I get a call from a manager um, from festival, somebody that has some rank and the person on the other end of the line begins sobbing. The person that was talking to this older white woman was somebody of importance to that company. So you have somebody in management, high management that just witnessed this interaction and did nothing. Uh. So she's sobbing and, it, and I, I feel like, you know, at this point I'm like, okay, I can be really, really nasty or I can have some empathy and have this a teaching moment. And so me being me, I chose the latter. And I I said to her, I said, ma'am, do you have any idea what I wanted to say to that woman and to you after that happened? And I said, what do you suppose would have happened if I would have started raising my voice? And she said, the cops could have been called. And I said, yeah. And I Mm -hmm. said, and what do you think might have happened cops were called and it clicked for her mm-hmm. um, now my hope is you know in a perfect world she would have called that woman who she clearly had some type of relationship with and said you're no longer welcome here um, but what I hope is and what I asked her I said you got to call this out and she mm-hmm. you know she used all the right language but she genuinely seemed embarrassed by you know her just dismissal of not reading between the lines Mm -hmm. um so yeah like my interactions with people here when i whenever i see a cop i my heart jumps to my throat Mm -hmm. um i was pulled over for a um uh, a light bulb uh, brake light that was out and you know i called my wife put her on speakerphone and told her i was getting pulled over like my interactions Mm -hmm. with just people um, especially people that I feel that have a power you know a power structure or a power position that's higher than me um, I tend to give in and sink and then I hate myself mm-hmm. afterwards mm-hmm. Yeah. oh so you know I, I'm 
Well, it's weird. You know, they're, they're, I had an impulse to say, I'm sorry that happened to you. And I, and I am genuinely from human to human, right? Um, and, and yet I know that statement means nothing. It means nothing to you. <laughs> Often means nothing from a lot of particularly white people saying it in, the, in these instances of racism. You know, I asked you earlier about like what would have to be different for you to feel like you had a place and you didn't have to be, you know, constantly kind of striving. Um, but what I'm struck with, it's nothing that you have to have or should do. Um, what has to change is the, is, is the response by white folks in particular uh, around others. Um, and then unless and until that happens in a meaningful way, you'll continue to, to, to feel this pressure and, and the drain, you know, the, the, uh, the extra energy that you take to have to say the right thing or avoid saying the wrong thing, and all the extra work you put in to you know, keep yourself out of danger as a result of, of racism. Um, it's, I, awesome. I, it's exhausting uh, and constantly chasing. Um, yeah. And, you know, the more and more people tell me I don't need to chase, I double down on it. Like, I, I, I do more of it. I get it. Um, like, it's, mm -hmm. it's not soothing to hear that you're, you know, it's not soothing to really hear that you have a place or you matter. Cause I don't believe mm -hmm. it. Like, I just, mm -hmm. I don't believe it. Um, yeah. I, I'm going to ask you, uh, share, share something earlier this week about institutional versus systemic racism kind of a, as terms. So I was on a webinar where Janet Helms was being interviewed was famous for developing the racial identity model. And this was a this is a collection of black psychologists who've been doing a lot of programming around educating academics. And so one of the uh, audience, one of the hosts, I think Dr. Della Mosley asked her the question. So what's, what's the difference between those two terms? And are they used interchangeably? And uh, Dr. Helms said, uh, yeah, from for, for most people that they're used interchangeably, right? They describe this kind of big systemic stuff. She's like, but the problem with calling it systemic is it leaves us to throw our hands up and be like, ah, oh, it's a system. I, and it, it's abstract. I don't know what to do about it. Yeah. Versus if I label it as, if we label it as institutional, it's like it belongs to, it belongs to us. It belongs to this institution we're part of. It belongs to UWL or it belongs to this police department or in, in this case, even it belongs to festival foods. Um, and, I'm, I'm, and I'm wondering how you've feel about that uh, and, and this idea about naming, because I, I, I understand and respect you're saying, I don't want to name this individual because I don't want to reduce the potential harm of his partner or spouse. Um, and yet on the flip side, I, I have been hearing more people, you know, sh saying names mm -hmm. and saying, I'm no longer yeah. going to allow the system to be silent. So where are you on that? Um, I will not. I won't compromise another person being silenced so I'm heard. If it means, you know, in this case, harm to another person, um, I'm just not willing to do that because mm -hmm. I, I'm just not willing to do that. Because I, mm -hmm. you know, you know it, 
and I agree when systemic comes up or people get really, really, I think overwhelmed. I think that's, that's part of my frustration though. Yeah. Because it is systemic and the system is yeah. of multiple institutions. Um, with all due respect to people, it's not my job. You feel uncomfortable or overwhelmed, especially for people that haven't lived it. It's like, yeah, I feel like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna dumb it down for people. I mean, part of the reason where we're where we're at is because school curriculums have attempted to dumb down history yeah. to celebrate heroes. I just I'm not gonna do it for people. Um, mm-hmm. You know, over the, the course of the past month, people have been like, "I'm so exhausted about reading and reading." I'm like, "I don't want to hear it." Like, yeah, tend to self-care, but I don't want to hear it. Like, just don't. I get it. <laughs> I get it. But, you know, I don't reach out and share the things that I'm frustrated about all the time. Like, I, I just, people have to be willing to go through the change process. If you care there will be a level of discomfort in you caring. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. It just, and that's, that's part of the thing. I, I guess, you know, I, I made a comment earlier about how it feels like a popularity contest around here sometimes, you know, nepotism, all that good stuff. That's part of yeah. the, problem. that's part of the problem is there's a level of comfort and expectation. Um, and that is also the value of having diversity is yeah. it doesn't allow complacency. I like, I struggle with complacent people. I just, mm-hmm. I do. Part of that's my own stuff because I can't slow myself down sometimes, but I also see how dangerous complacency is. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, I get the systemic institutional, and I, and, I, and I think each institution needs to take it upon themselves to do better for the greater good of the system. But I'm not, I'm not comfortable calling it institutional just for the sake of saving people from feeling overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll put it, I'll put it like this too. So, you know, you want to talk about something else that's very systemic in addition to racism. We'll talk about, you know, like domestic violence or mm-hmm. something like that. If I were to take the attitude that, well, I'm not going to really give a shit about everything because it doesn't happen in my house, mm-hmm. people would look at me like, what the hell's wrong with this guy? And I think there's people that really believe that. But I'm not in the business for, you know, keeping things safe for people. Mm-hmm. That's why we're in this damn position the way we are. Is people? It's been too comfortable um yeah i don't know i i, I don't know i mean a, a crazy parallel just came to mind like you ask i imagine most women who have given birth to a child was the pain worth it well hell yeah mm-hmm. i mean maybe it's not the best example but no i am not interested in um 
I believe in, to a degree, a sacrifice, but what I'm tired of doing is making my life harder to make other people's lives easier. There you go. Really hard of it. Really, really tired of it. Excuse me. Um, you know. There you go. <laughs> I just, I can't do it anymore. I, I just, I've done it for a while. Um, I, yeah, I, I won't, won't do it anymore. Yep. And I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm struck with your, how that theme and that thread has, has been with you from the beginning, right? When you were describing, you know, just life growing, growing up at home. Um, and, you know, when I asked you earlier about what, again, what, what needs to be different, what I hear you saying is, I need you to step the fuck up. Dot, 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 you know, white people, men, whomever, right? Like, people in those positions of power dominance. Um, and I need you to sit in it and stay in it. Yeah. Start acting like the person you think you are. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. It's, um, you know, you read some of these statements after you know, George Floyd and the protests, and a lot of them were just complete bullshit. Um, I had... You know, correspondence with a few people in the area, leaders, and I've made comments about how it just doesn't hit right. You know, it's not denouncing the correct things. And what I get back from people is, oh, well, thanks for your input. Like, no. I mean, you're afraid of using, you know, the term police brutality because you want to play to a certain base and. You know, let's be honest here. If you are that afraid of pissing off cops that come to your business, what kind of fucking cops are we talking about here? Right. I got plenty of law enforcement friends who will use the words police brutality because they know it exists and it fucking disgusts them. Mm-hmm. Any cop that gets pissed off about that, I have some follow-up questions. Mm-hmm. You know? But yeah, I, it's weird. I <clears throat> lacrosse has been, you know, really good to me in terms of, um, you know, without a doubt, like jump starting me. Um, I feel like there are times where perhaps I've been given the nod because I look different. Um, I would say that yeah, that's certainly true and few ventures of mine um but i don't know it just there's something about a system that that says to you you got to keep giving and giving and giving before any you notice anybody giving back Mm -hmm. Um, yeah i don't know it's it's obnoxious um i i I asked you at the very beginning, and you talked a little bit at the very beginning about what feels different this time. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I, I want to raise raise the, raise the phrase that a, a man of good enough who's in our campus climate office, you know, she just said this on a on a meeting the other day, and it may not be her original words, but you know, she said, "How do we make? How do we turn this from a moment into a movement?" Um, and I, I've been thinking a lot about that lately, and you know, you. you mentioned the word power before. And I, I think I've had the myth, particularly as a white person, that 
we we can that this isn't a zero sum game that we that, that we can expand the pie. I don't have to give anything up in order to to support the growth and development humanity of, of, right. of others, people of color. I'm realizing now that's been that that's been a in many ways a white supremacy take on things, right? Because it's saying I get to keep doing everything I'm doing without looking at it in any way. But I, so I guess I'm coming out and saying this to you, human to human, but also maybe even to some of the audience. I realize now for, in some ways this is a zero sum game, right? I, I only have so many, you know, so much financial resources you know, to give charitably. I have only so much time to give professionally, time to give personally. If I'm not willing to give up some of that time and some of those resources in supporting others, communities of color, then I'm not gonna do, I'm not doing the work. The system isn't going to change. So in some senses, I have to be willing to give up some power. I have to, but share it, not, you know, not in the sense of, of giving it up, but sharing it with others. And I, I, I no longer believe uh, that we'll just say lacrosse as a community, we can't support growth and, and others' humanities without sharing and giving up some of our own goals and time and resources. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point. And, and going back to the statements, I think if people would have released a statement, I mean, the best statement we have comes from an ice cream company. An ice cream company. Ben and Jerry's one? Has put every other statement to shame like yeah and it's not even close now is that going to cost them people from buying their ice cream probably mm -hmm. but my feeling is they don't care mm -hmm. like, if anything in their statement offends you bothers you or whatever they feel like they don't care if they have your five bucks a pint of ice cream mm -hmm. uh, with with one of the statements here locally if a few people would have dropped their membership, do you want them in your environment anyways? Mm -hmm. I don't know. Um, I've had to make some decisions around social circles based on, um, you know, the blurred lines of politics. Yeah. It's like, this is not, Republican, Democrat stuff anymore. This is hate. And, mm -hmm. you know, so like, is my, my list of associates, I won't even consider friends smaller. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But fine. Like, it's, it's, it's better that way. Um, you know, the, the most frustrating thing, I think, for me is, um, you know, number one, I, I said the most frustrating. That, that's a lie. The, 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 the list of frustrating things for me, um, number one, when I am out in public, especially the first two weeks after all this, um, you know, I, I carry some things to protect myself if needs be because most of the people around me, your life doesn't change a damn bit. Yeah. No matter, I'm sorry, but no matter who's in office, what policies in place, there are parts of your life that don't change a damn bit. Um, yeah. That's frustrating. Um, it's frustrating for me, I think, being on the biracial end of things. Um, 
to be suggested that I don't understand like the African American experience, um, which is laugh out loud funny with the litany of stories I can tell from that have happened to me and things my sister has experienced. Um, that's maddening too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it's. <clears throat> Yeah, my, my frustration around race relations has been, it's been pretty, um, what's the word, what's the phrase I'm looking for? My experience with race relations with people has very, it's been kind of you know, open season. It's been really, um, it's been on a lot of different fronts being told that I'm whitewashed and I come from a Western point of view because I'm a therapist and don't understand stuff pisses me off mm-hmm. to be told that, um, you know, racism is over because we had Obama as president is maddening. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, um, equal opportunity. That's what I was looking for. You know, uh. issue with, with, with people and the issues of race it's very equal opportunity because I've been badgered on both sides. You know, mm-hmm. that, that especially, um, part of my you know, identity of not knowing who the fuck I am is because there's, there's a, an experience of mine that doesn't get captured by you're a human being. Mm-hmm. You know, like there's nothing lazier than all lives matter or we're human beings. Like that's, mm-hmm. Yes, it's all true. It can mm-hmm. it all can be true, and it still be a lazy assessment of the human condition. Um, <laughs> I have no issue telling people that they're lazy when they come at me with this shit. Um, but you know, you feel like you don't have roots. You feel like you don't have like an identity. Like that's one mm-hmm. of the things I'm chasing is an identity. Like mm-hmm. I know who I am as a therapist, as an instructor as a trainer, um, you know, mostly as a dad and a husband, I think, but, you know, when you strip away the roles and the responsibilities, you're left with you. And I have no idea. I, I, like, um, the hatred I've had for myself for most of my life has decreased. Um, but it's still, still there one of the things i'm i'm absolutely embarrassed about um but so when my wife was pregnant with our son and we went to do the find out if it was a boy or girl at the doctor um when they said it was a boy um i was pretty pretty pissed um i grew up around women so like I have a younger sister. I have, you know, most of my um, cousins are girls. And, you know, I felt like I got girls. Like, I could, but mm-hmm. how the fuck am I going to raise a boy? Like, I have mm-hmm. no, I have no, um, I have no training or no vicarious experiences to understand how a man is supposed to raise a boy into a man. Um, yeah. And, you know, some of that went away when he was born and I held him for the first time. It's like, 
you know, this is the most important thing in the world and you're going to do everything to protect him. But there's still like some reservation I have about myself in terms of raising him into a man because mm-hmm. you know, my wife gets a kick out of him like copying me and emulating me and it it kind of disgusts me because I want him to be better like I, I don't want him to you know I hope he treats people the way I try to treat him um, yeah. I, I, I you know I hope I, I want for him everything that I was told I couldn't have. Um, <laughs> but I do doubt myself quite a bit about my ability to guide him, to help him understand that he can do whatever the hell he wants, be who he wants. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's just I, not knowing. I'm, I'm really moved by that. Um, it's, and at the same time, it's really sad to hear how different your view of yourself is compared to those in the world who know and love you. And, and, and I certainly understand having been a, you know, being a parent and thinking I, I had, now I've got two girls, but I, I had a similar thought when my friend was like, I, I don't know if I want to raise a, a boy. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, you've shared today in our discussion, you, know, you, you had versions of, masculinity and manhood where it's very clear you don't want emulated you, you know you've seen and been part of the unhealthy components and so i i get that i don't have that model and yet you're living the opposite of that and that's what your son sees and will see uh but now i, I i'm hearing though that same theme of you see yourself on the inside and, and there's that gap between how others see you yeah. uh, and how your son, when he's emulating you, is is emulating, you know, those beautiful parts of yourself that others see in you. So I, this isn't about, I cannot tell you, obviously, right, what, what, how to see yourself or, you know, what that identity piece is. However, through this whole conversation, beginning with the congenital heart issues, when I see you, I see a giant heart. Thank you. Amidst all the roles, all the, you know, all the all the challenges, all the all the stuff that you say, that is always at the center of how I see you. And I suspect the people who know you see that. I appreciate hearing that. I, I try to, you know, my my therapeutic relationship with the people that I I try to help guide to meet their goals and dreams. Mm -hmm. Uh, The way I look at them, the way I look at my students, colleagues and friends, um, you know, sometimes I admittedly fall short of the mark of this because I can, I'm very direct (laughs) sometimes, especially in my frustration. Um, But I don't know, like when I, when I, when I work with people and see people, it's really cool to kind of like see a version of themselves that they they don't see at all. Um, mm-hmm. It's such in their blind spot for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. But I try to treat and work with people like they're about to discover the miracle that is them. 
Mm-hmm. You know, of course, Lord knows I have days where you know I don't come across the way that my values are. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's it's yeah, it's it's exhausting. Mm-hmm. I like what I do, um, but I try to treat interactions as you know an opportunity to hopefully have people feeling like they've moved forward in their life some way, shape, or form. Not that I force them to see it, but I, I think just by reciprocating respect and care, mm-hmm. and you know, you know, there are people in my life that will tell me what I need to hear, not what I want to hear. I do that to a fault with some people in my life too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Trying to evolve with that so it becomes more constructive than you know lashing out. But um, yeah, I don't. I don't know. I I have no idea where this is going to going to go. It's well, I I feel I feel comfortable saying this to you directly. Right. So <laughs> for two reasons, one, you know, that, that I've gotten to know you uh, better over the years, but also from clinician to clinician. And, and I, I do, I'm just going to make this observation. You don't I'm not ask you to respond to it. Um, but, you know, my observation was, you know, I, I shared how I see you and I suspect most of the world sees you. And you went to here. Here I am as a therapist and here's what I do for others. And some of this is tied up in Midwest culture, I believe, you know, like the difficulty of, of sitting with something, you know, a gift like that. It's like, you know, there's this kind of humility thing. And, and, and my wish for you is that you can give yourself time and space to sit with that and recognize it and, and feel it, like listen to it and believe it. And, and when others in your life do see you for who you are, just be with it. Yeah. It's that acceptance piece. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't quite figured out when your mind tells you that it's okay to do that. <laughs> you know, you know what I mean? Like it's no, I mean to your point though, like yeah, compliments don't sit well. They right. <laughs> compliments serve as barriers to get to where wherever the hell you think you're going. And if you ask me where I'm going, I have no idea. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going forward though. Um, but no, I, it's that's been echoed in many different ways to me. Um, and like I said, it's you know as I said before that you know I, I don't hate or dislike myself as much as I probably once did. So I've been doing some work around that, or you know, like when you hear. My son will say that I want to be like you. There's less times I say no, be better. Um, mm. You know, because that, you know, I don't want him to think it's a bad thing to try to be like his dad because his dad tries his best to do the best that he can. And that's like, mm. that's what I want for him too, is just to know that his best is 20. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't have a. I don't have a benchmark of success for him. If he wants to play sports, he, he can play sports. If he, if he wants to, I mean, I don't care. Like, just try to treat people uh, with 
respect and dignity while at the same time being assertive and setting boundaries for yourself. Yeah. Well, I, I have no doubt that um, you will, you know, he's a little dude right now, right? And, and so there's only you know, so much you can say, and, but I have no doubt that you'll have a relationship where you get to have, you know, these deep and vulnerable discussions and you're already providing him the one thing you said at the very beginning that you didn't have was that you're good enough no matter what that looks like yeah yeah that's you know i think one of the prerequisites to being an effective parent is um you got to be good enough with yourself to ensure that their kid knows you know that the child knows that they're good enough too i mean it starts at, at the top it's like many yeah. things it starts at the top um, you know it's one thing that i think my wife and i have done very well with him is um we've just accepted him you know mm -hmm. he's in this phase now where like he makes these obnoxious beatbox noises and, <laughs> you know like so we try to like Growing, you're creative, you know, in between, would you please stop? Like, <laughs> right. you know, so, but I, you know, I don't know. I, yeah, sometimes I, you know, I wonder what the family or even my dad thinks, like, authentically, not surface level stuff. Like, I just yeah. wonder, you know, getting the letter I sent, I, like, I know it, it hit a nerve because mm -hmm. that thing was fucking hard writing. It flowed mm -hmm. easily. I mean, it was hard writing because I knew on some level there was going to be some consequences for this, but not what I got. Like, that was completely anticipated. Mm -hmm. Now I'm older, a little wiser, and I understand that there are families who don't talk about their stuff, and those that do are punished for it mm -hmm. see it all the time in therapy all the time right 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 well and i i it, it sounds like getting some degree with if not closure at least getting some dialogue is an important is important to you it's important to healing and so i also might you know one of my wishes for you is that, that that your dad's able to meet you there at some point when you're both ready to do it yeah, he's, you know, got some choices to make that yeah. aren't just about affecting his son. He's got a grandson that is genuinely interested in him. Um, yeah. And, you know, what he needs to know is that when the time comes, I'm not going to duck and dodge questions mm -hmm. that my son has. I'm not, I'm not going to. Just like mm -hmm. when my nieces and nephews get old enough to start asking questions about some of this divide, it's going to be really hard for me not to answer them honestly in the way that i experienced them mm -hmm. um and i think it's important to note the, the way i experienced them understanding that there's multiple truths to what happened mm -hmm. just how my little role in the world but i mean once you know it all goes back to that letter once that letter dropped um i mean it was like chernobyl like it just mm -hmm. years later just has profound impact on people and the environment 
I don't regret it though. Um, was probably outside of probably getting married and becoming a dad the most important thing I've done in my life. Well, it sounded like it, it broke the narrative of mm -hmm. silence and collusion of silence. Yeah. It's important to, um, I think, model some of the change that you expect in your own life. Mm -hmm. So, again, it starts at the top. Um, mm -hmm. There are things I got to put myself through to ensure that, you know, our son may not have to experience it. Mm -hmm. And that's why working and, you know, just nonstop um, forging ahead is worth it for me because mm -hmm. he's going to benefit from it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know. So James, I want to check in with you before we started, you know, you know, we had each asked each other how much time you have to spend doing this. We joked a little bit about white time and, <laughs> you know, shooting for 90 minutes, but being like, you know what, let's just let it be what it is. Um, so I, but I want to check in with you whether, um, you know, whether you have time for your fast five, mm -hmm. I can yeah. flip that script on you. Um, Absolutely. Um, so so for, for those that might be new to James' uh, podcast, the Bet on Yourself and Double Down podcast, uh, he ends his um, interviews with fast five questions. And, and I want to say too, like th there's, th there's no graceful way to shift from the, 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 the difficult personal experience that you've been having. And, and so that's not what this is about, right? You know, so it's still to hold space and honor um, all the stuff that you shared. But I also I also want to honor um, yeah, your your approach to doing this and ask you some quick questions. Of course, I'm ready for them. And no, you ready? I don't feel this is a, an, an avoidant or an insensitive um, transition. Um, anybody that has been in therapy or is a therapist understands that um, there's next time. That's right. <laughs> no, right. I didn't think that for a second. All right. Okay. Well, you ready? I am ready. All right. What was the last song on your playlist? Does the podcast count? No, I'm sorry. No, what were you listening to? What song what was the oh, last song? Um, Miente. Um, I don't remember the artist, but my son likes that song. So, um, it's from Trolls World Tour. So, oh yeah. I just saw that with, yeah. our, with our kids so, last weekend. Miente. I don't remember who the artist, but yeah, that's okay. like, that's, yeah, that's a song that I'll be excited if I never have to hear again soon. All right. <laughs> All right. Number two, if you could erase a style choice or trend from your youth, what would it be? Erase? Erase, yeah. If you look back and like, well, why'd I do that? I wish I could take that out of the photos. Oh boy. Um, boy, that's a good one. Um, I think tight rolling jeans. That was going to be mine too. That's hilarious. Do we call it? We call it French rolling in Detroit or uh, the suburbs there. But I, yeah, yeah, I just. <laughs> I just never 
I mean, I did it, of course, to save face, but boy, that was the most useless waste of time. Yeah, I don't get that. Yeah. yeah. So I, I have a follow up question with that. Did you also pin your jeans? No. So, so the options were to roll them, but if you really wanted to get them tight on the calf, you, you would pin them as well or, or separately. Okay, that maybe that was a regional thing in, in Michigan. No, that's interesting. Okay, no, it was worse. You guys wasted more time than we did. <laughs> that's right, having safety pins on your jeans. Oh my God. All right, um, what are you reading right now? I am reading right now, um, it's called um, The Black Ice by Michael Conley. It's from the Harry Bosch detective series. Um, okay. So I'm reading that one, and um, the other one I'm going to start, actually, is I'm going to jump into that book that Bolton put out at 500-some-odd pages. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I was going back and forth. I'm like, do I really, really want to give this man any percentage of my money? But, you know, I guess, like, it's like what I said earlier. Um to understand history, mm. you know, you got to go to places that maybe you normally wouldn't go to. So ugly that, places. when that arrives, I'm going to jump in and I'm hoping for, um, what's, what's sickening about that book is going to be the entertainment value is going to be the criminality of everything. <laughs> so sure. It's like, <laughs> it's just, you're trafficking in, um, un you know, unethical shit, but yeah, we'll, yeah. See. we'll see. Yeah, I, I'm laughing only to cover my tears, by the way, <laughs> when I when I think about that. Um, all right, number four, if you could acquire a talent without any extra effort, what would it be? My ability to write. No all right. Question. No question. Yeah. Um, right. And then last one, and there's some irony here, given how hard you work, I realize as we've talked, but I'm gonna ask anyway. If you could add one hour to your day, what would you do with it? Oof. If I had one hour to my day, what would I do? Um, I'd be at home. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I guess in theory, I could cut out an hour of work to be at home for that hour. Mm -hmm. And I think be at home. Yeah, there's nothing, nothing that an extra hour is, yeah, just being at home, I think. Yeah. Sounds like a nice place to be. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's been um, oddly comforting the past few months. So. Yeah, it's been yeah, just a way to escape the external world. Um, mm -hmm. But it's weird because the engine is still revving to keep going, going, going. But um, mm -hmm. home, at least, I can um, try my best to not act as if I can yeah. be much more aligned to who I am as a person, which is, mm -hmm. which is relaxing. I wish I could transfer that to other parts of my life but right now it doesn't feel safe or the right time to but i'm working on it sure i get that well i, I just i, I want to just express my gratitude for 
for getting to spend this time with you and get to ask you the questions that you ask others. Uh, and I'm just going to back off and hand this back over to you as the uh, owner creator of this podcast. Thank you, Ryan. I, I greatly appreciate it. And um, yeah, I, like I said before, I think it's, um, it's important for um, me to model to a degree um, some of the things that you know, some of my guests might share. Um, and while I don't expect people to dive that deep, um, you know, it's, it shows a, a humanity to you know, the other side of the computer screen when I'm, when I'm talking with you. So thank you. I, I appreciate it. My pleasure.